Van Gogh's Starry Night is one of the most popular paintings in our day and age. And while I personally prefer realistic or hyper-realistic artwork, my wife, being an artist and this being one of her favorite pictures, reminded me that impressionistic artwork has a far different goal than realistic type of artwork. As she explained it to me, the goal of this type of artwork is not to give a point-by-point detail of the world as we see it, but the goal is more so to evoke emotion and to cause us to think deeply about what we're seeing from a different perspective. It's to look at the world in a different light and to appreciate that which we often miss. As we look at this photo here on the screen, it's the moving beauty of the night sky that is brought to bear upon us. Though it may be a common night for this little town in the background, it is anything but common as the wonder of the stars are brought to bear upon us in brilliant colors. And by portraying the sky with this exaggerated color scheme, it's helping us to fully appreciate that which we often miss, the stars and the night sky and its beauty that is around us each and every day. As I was thinking through this type of impressionistic artwork, I couldn't help but realize that there are many similarities between this type of work and the book of Zechariah that we come back to here this morning. For the goal of Zechariah, as we read its pages, isn't to give us a point-by-point detail of reality as we see it, but its goal, like this impressionistic painting, is to give us a different perspective, specifically God's perspective on the way that things truly are here today. And so it's meant to target your emotions, your feelings, and to convince you of God's reality as he sees it. So as we contemplate our world, as we often feel the brokenness all around us, as we are often just plagued by by hopelessness, this book, like this painting, reveals to us in brilliant colors that our world is anything but hopeless because of what God is doing here today for us. And so this brings us then to Zechariah chapter 9. And if we were to summarize a main point from this chapter, it would be something like this. Don't long for Tyre, but long for God's Messiah King instead. Don't long for Tyre, long for God's Messiah. And why do this? Because God's judgment is coming upon Tyre, and it's also going to destroy them completely. And more than this, God's Messiah King brings true salvation. So don't long for Tyre or her values. Long for Jesus, the true Messiah, who brings true salvation. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to chapter 9 of your Bibles as we look at this passage here together. As we enter this text, we find the naming of a bunch of different cities that Ben had said for us already different regions of land. And what all of these cities, all of these regions have in common is that the word of the Lord is against them. The word of God stands against these cities and these regions. And it stands against them because as our text read, the eyes of humanity and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. 
Now, commentators aren't exactly sure what is meant by the eyes of humanity being on the Lord, but I think what is meant here, my best guess, is that God has come to be the focal point for all people in the world. And as Israel tries to regather herself and rebuild her city, people are looking to see if God will act for his people. Will God act for Israel, or will he let them be destroyed and have his name blasphemed among the Gentiles? And so though I could be wrong, I think that's what's being communicated here. And so because all eyes are on him, he will act for his people by being against their enemies. He will no longer let them be the laughing stock among the nations as they had been for so long. Now, as we consider, again, these cities and these regions, my guess is we don't know very much about them at all. You look at that and you're like, I have no idea what that city is about. So what should we know about these cities? First, we should know that four of the six cities mentioned here are of Philistia. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. As you read your Old Testament, these are the cities of the Philistines. And the Philistines, as we know, were the ancient enemies of Israel. They had beef with each other for a very, very, very long time. And the most famous Philistine we all know is Goliath, right? David fought Goliath, bringing him down with a sling and a stone. So even if you don't know anything about these cities, just know that they were the ancient enemies of Israel. And God's word is against them. This brings us to the last two cities of Tyre and Sidon. And they were close allies of the Philistines. They supported them. It's also important for us to know that they were very wealthy. They were both Phoenician and they made their money through trade. But it's here in our text that Sidon takes a backseat and Tyre comes to the spotlight as the main culprit and the main problem. As we examine the judgment of God upon Tyre by name, we should know at least a couple different historical things about this city. First, we should know that Tyre had a reputation for being nearly unconquerable in its time. This island city held out against the powerful Assyrian army for five years, and then they held out against the powerful Babylonians for 13 years, and then they also held out against the global superpower, which was Persia in that day and age. And so the people there were no doubt filled with pride at their heritage. They were nearly unconquerable because it was located on an island that had 100 feet high walls, 150 feet high walls all around her. And it made her nearly impenetrable. Which is why Zechariah says in verse 3, they have made themselves a fortress. This again leads to the second thing we should know about the city. It was incredibly wealthy. Our text tells us that, and it was true and recorded by many historians. It was a major trade city, and as a result, the people there were filthy rich. As our text tells, they heaped up silver and gold as if it were dust or dirt. And so as we contemplate these ancient enemies of Israel, they were wealthy, they were rich, they were well fortified, they had impenetrable walls, and they were nearly unconquerable, and they served as allies to the Philistines. This city in that day and age stood as the epitome of human 
greatness. And all the cities around her longed to be like her. And this was exactly the problem. Tyre, instead of trusting in the God of Israel, has come to trust in her own riches, her own defense mechanisms for salvation. They trusted in their own self-sufficiency. Who was the God of Israel? We don't need him. So in Tyre, we find an incredibly materialistic, a prideful, self-sufficient people who boasted in their legacy and the salvation they provided for themselves. And so God's judgment is against her. He's against this city. For he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So even though Tyre feels incredibly safe, the Lord promises here in this text to bankrupt her and to destroy her and to scatter her wealth in the seas. And when she falls, the Philistines will tremble in fear because Tyre, who was their ally and provider of salvation, has been taken away. And eventually, many years later, Alexander the Great would come on the scene and he would wipe the city from the face of the earth. So as we evaluate this word of judgment from God upon Tyre, what are God's people meant to take away? There are many different things, but I want to highlight just two of them for us this morning. First, I want us to notice something that we may have not noticed right away. Notice that this word of judgment surprisingly brings salvation. Again, I think we're tempted just to gloss right over this. But please notice what God plans to do after destroying Tyre. What does he plan to do after destroying Tyre and the pride of the Philistines? Verse 7. I will remove the blood from their mouths and the abhorrent things from between their teeth. Then, then they too will become a remnant for our God. They will become like a clan in Judah and Ekron, like the Jebusites. This is in reference to the Philistines. In re removing the blood from their mouths, he is referring to the ancient practice of the Philistines to eat meat with its lifeblood still in it. And this, of course, was banned for the Jews under Levitical law. But in removing this practice from the Philistines, God is saying that he is going to incorporate some of these Philistines into the people of God. He's going to make them equal with the clan of Judah. So don't miss that. They too, the Philistines, these people who are judged, will become a remnant for our God. They will become like a clan in Judah. And so the Philistines, again, will be brought into the people of God. And this point is made clear as he compares the Philistines to the Jebusites of old. Now, while we might be unfamiliar with the Jebusites, all we need to know is that back in Exodus 23, 23, this group of people were initially destined for destruction. But God, in his mercy and his grace, incorporates this clan, many from that clan, into the people of Israel. They are not destroyed or wiped out, but they are brought into God's people. And so he's saying, so as it happened to them, so will it happen to the Philistines. As the Philistines trust is destroyed in the false salvation of Tyre, they're able to receive true salvation from the God of Israel. Now, while we rejoice 
in seeing this in the scriptures? As our hearts leap for joy? I can tell you that many Jews hearing this would not have liked this at all. I mean, after all, the Philistines were like the mortal enemies of Israel, right? Just read a few chapters. You come to find out they are enemies of Israel. And yet God is going to to restore them. He's going to make them part of our people. And he's going to make them our equals. They would have had major issues with that. So while we rejoice and give thanks, because in seeing the Philistines redeemed, we think of our own inclusion into God's people, they would have had serious issues. And the reality is, I think many of us here this morning still have issues with God's grace at times. Sure, we're okay with God's grace to us. He can incorporate us into God's people, but not the people that hate us, not the people that have it out for us, not for the people who irritate us or rub us the wrong way. But as we see God's heart for the nations here in these pages, it reminds us that we too must respond as God does for the enemies of Israel. We must respond to our own enemies today with compassionate love and care and joy, not anger or hatred. So this morning, as we see God bring in these historic enemies of the Philistines to God's people, so we must have the same orientation of our own enemies in this day and age. We must not look on with anger, hate, or irritation, but with the incredible mercy and love of God for them. For we were just as unworthy as we've sung and unlovable, and yet God rescued us. So I encourage you this morning, for those whom you consider your enemies, pray for them. Those who irritate you and don't like you for no apparent reason, those whom you think are unworthy of God's love, love them. Ask God to change your heart, our hearts, so that we would be a light and a beacon of hope for all people that God desires to save. So this is the first thing we are to take away in this word of judgment. God brings salvation, and he desires to use his people for that. But the second thing then is, it warns us not to trust in Tyre or her values. Don't look to Tyre for salvation. Don't strive to be like her. And as we draw similarities between their day and our own, so we, as God's people, are called not to put our hope in cities like Tyre with her riches or her defense systems, but to instead place our complete trust in our God who rules and reigns above. For he's the only one that can truly bring salvation. So as people today who live in a place that is very much like Tyre of old, where we boast of an impressive history of holding out against global superpowers and where wealth is more plentiful than ever before and where we spend more than any country in the world on our defense budget and where people across the globe depend upon our country for alliances. As people today who live in modern Tyre, we must take this warning to heart. For God's judgment falls on those who in their pride trust in their materialistic goods, riches, and self-sufficiency for, save, uh, for salvation. His judgment falls on those who arrogantly disregard their need for God's grace and salvation. And the reality is, 
We are all sinners in need of his grace. And riches and wealth can do nothing to solve that problem. Only God can. So in response, we must ask ourselves some difficult questions here this morning. Am I, like Tyre, trusting in material wealth or goods as my ultimate hope and joy in life? Or to modernize it, am I looking to the American dream of having a car, house, spouse, and family to meet the deepest desires of my heart? Am I looking to things or people for ultimate joy and purpose in life more than I am to Jesus and his purposes for me? Am I trusting in our country's politicians to give me the security that only Jesus can give me? Are we truly trusting in Jesus for the joy and salvation that only he can bring to our lives? Or are we instead deluding ourselves by trusting in something or someone else just as Tyre did? I think one of the surest ways that we can find out as we ask these questions is how we react and how we respond when we don't get the things we want or we lose the things that we do have. When I lose these things, this wealth, this money, or I don't get what I want, can we still have joy and contentment? Is Jesus still enough, even if you never get X, Y, or Z? Or does life instead cease to have meaning or purpose? I think the truth is that many of us, all of us, at times, act as if we can't have joy or contentment or security unless we have this something or this someone in our lives. And when we realize that we're acting in that way, we must take that opportunity to turn again to our truest Savior and our truest defense found in God alone. We must long for God and His Messiah over and against the false salvation that Tyre provides. And so that's what this second half of this chapter is about. As we turn from the false saviors of this world to God, we find that he will offer true salvation. He will encamp around his people as our text tells us. He will guard them and be a wall of fire to them. He gives them the truest security there is. He will do this through his Messiah King that we read about. So we looked in at verses 9 through 17, God's Messiah King that brings true salvation and security. So we move into verse 9. There is a call to rejoice. Rejoice! And the reason to rejoice is because this Messianic King promised ages ago is coming to them. And I'm not going to like shortchange you on this. We know this to be Jesus Christ, our King, right? That's what the New Testament reveals to us. And so then the text reveals to us at least four reasons to rejoice at the coming of Jesus here in these verses. First, he comes as the righteous, victorious one. That is, this King, Jesus, will come and he will do that which is right and true. He will do what is right and true as opposed to the evil kings in Israel's past. And he will proclaim victory. The victory has won to his people over the forces of 
darkness. All of this we see clearly in Jesus. For he did all that was right all the days of his life. He lived a life free from sin, and he never once submitted to the forces of darkness. Instead, in his life and ministry, we see him resist the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. And he casts out demons by the word of his mouth. He heals the sick and the lame, even as we read this morning. And he raises the dead. He comes as the righteous, victorious one. So rejoice. Second, then, we see that this king comes as the humble peace giver. And this is what is drawn out as Jesus rides into the city on a donkey. The kings of old would ride in on a donkey to proclaim peace as a sign of celebration. They would come on a donkey symbolizing peace rather than a war horse. And so this king then would come to bring peace to all people. And it would be a peace so great that he would do away with the weapons of war that his people would carry. I think this is what is explicitly said in verse 10 for us. I will cut off the battle chariot from Ephraim, which is northern Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem. He's taking away the military weapons of his people. And the bow of war will be removed, and he, the Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. And so this king will not only come to bring peace, he will bring an era to peace to his people like never before. So as Jesus comes in, we again see him fulfilling this word. He doesn't come with the sword, but to bring the peace that each and every one of us here this morning so desperately need with God. Because the reality is, whether we realize it or not, All of us, all humanity, has been in rebellion against God since the beginning. And our rebellion against God is proved whenever we do what is right in our own eyes, rather than what God desires of us and what he made us to do. And whenever we do what is right in our own eyes, we lack peace. We don't have it because we don't have peace with God. But Jesus' coming here in this text changes that. He came to bring peace and to make peace between us and God. But in order to make peace with God for us, there would need to be a new agreement that needed to be made between God and man. A new covenant as we put it. The Messiah would have to make a new agreement with God so that we could have fellowship so that we could have true peace with our loving Heavenly Father that we've been in rebellion against. And in making this new covenant, this new agreement, we would be saved from the pits of destruction and set free. But this new agreement for peace and fellowship with God wouldn't be cheap, even as our text alludes to. Instead, it would be paid for with the very blood of Jesus. Jesus would willingly go to his death on the cross and he would have his precious blood shed in order to enact this new agreement and this new covenant so that we could know peace with our God whom we've rebelled against. And so by faith, by faith in Jesus, 
we too, each and every one of us, can have peace with God and fellowship with our Creator. We can do this because of what Jesus has done for us. So if you haven't come this morning to become part of the new covenant believers, the new agreement that Jesus has won for you, know again what Jesus Christ has done for you. He shed his blood to bring you peace with God and the peace which we so desperately need. He loved you so much that he laid down his own life. So for those of us that have this, cherish it again. Cherish this Jesus who laid down his very life for you and live for him. Spread his rule and reign all over the earth. Proclaim this message of hope. For even as our text promises, his kingdom will extend over the ends of the earth as people come to know this King Jesus. And he intends to use you to do this. So as we come back to our text, then Zechariah 9, 12, it exhorts us, return, return to this stronghold alone. Return to this Messiah. Don't put your hope in the strongholds or walls like Tyre did and reap destruction, but hope in the stronghold, which is Jesus Christ himself. For as you do this, you will encounter his presence and his many promises. What are these promises? First, there is the promise of complete restoration. For the Israelites, this again was an immense word of encouragement. Because as we think of their situation, we remember that they were scattered. They were lost. They were ruined. But God promises here, as they return to him, he will restore them. No matter what they lost, God would restore it doubly to them. And then as we turn to the King of Israel, Jesus Christ himself, he echoes this same promise in fuller and in greater ways. For it's here in this text, he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive, not just double portion, a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. So find true salvation in Jesus. He will restore all that was lost. His salvation is far greater than we could ever possibly imagine or dream. He will give to us more than we ever gave to him. So there's, this is the first promise. But the second then is the promise of empowerment. Here we find again that God's people are being used as weapons of war. Which is interesting because if we go back to verse 10, the Messiah said he's going to do away with the weapons of war, right? But it seems here that the people would still be at war for God's kingdom. They just wouldn't be using physical weapons of war like Israel typically did. So what does this mean? Well, being on the other side, I think we can clearly see that God intends to use his people to advance his kingdom on earth, not through the physical warfare of weapons, but extend his kingdom as Jesus Christ himself did. And so we extend his kingdom as we self-sacrificially give as Christ gave to us, as we give up our lives for the sake of others, even as Jesus did for us, as we pray, as we love, as we show compassion and mercy to the poor, 
as we spread the gospel across the globe, this is how his kingdom will advance. Not through war, but through the peace-giving message of Jesus Christ. And so in this countercultural scheme, God would advance his kingdom on earth, not as the kings of old did, not through the schemes of acquiring money, wealth, and power, but they would be advanced through dependence upon God and in following in the footsteps of Jesus. And as God's people do this, we are given here really, I think, an impressionistic painting of what will take place. Look at verse 15 with me. When God's people do this, as they depend on God, as they look to their Messiah, Jesus, they will consume and conquer with sling and the stone. Now, now what's the point here? Are we actually going to go to war and take people out with a sling and a stone? I, I don't think that's what's being said here. It's hyperbolic language to make a point. The sling and stone was a poor man's weapon. Could it be deadly? Sure. But it definitely wasn't on the cutting edge of weaponry. It was typically ineffective against soldiers with armor, shields, and helmets. And it would be incredibly difficult to conquer anything with just slings and stones. And so I think that's exactly the point. God is ultimately saying here, in this picture, God's people would not conquer because of how great their weapons were or how innate their ability or skills, but they would conquer in this world because God is with them and he is fighting their battles. So much like David, who in the name of the Lord and with God's power at work in him conquered Goliath, with nothing but a sling and a stone, this ancient Philistine, so we can say here that God's people on earth will only conquer and win as God goes with them. For as Jesus promised his people, I am with you always. Yes, even until the end of the age. So I think all of us here this morning can be incredibly encouraged by this. Because I think many of us feel like we're carrying slings and stones. We feel highly ineffective and borderline useless at times, don't we? Like, is anything I'm doing at all in this world making a difference? So for those of you who feel that way, which is all of us at times, let this word serve as an encouragement to you. Because it matters less about the weapon or giftings we carry, and it matters more about the God that stands beside us and empowers us for his mission here on earth. For even as he said earlier on in Zechariah, his people would not advance in this world through strength or through might, but it would be by my spirit that God's people would conquer and win. So we then, as the people of God acknowledging this, must see the importance of God's presence with us. Do we hunger and long for God's power to be at work in us? Are we relying on the Holy Spirit? For if we don't, we will not conquer. We will not conquer sin. We will not conquer the desires of the flesh. We will instead fall flat on our face, and this church will not advance. But as we depend on God 
as we look to him, as we cry out to him in prayer, he is the one that makes us effective. So God's people then will conquer because he is the one who empowers them greatly. And then as they are empowered, verse 15, they will also drink and be rowdy as if with wine. What's that about? Again, as we view this impressionistic painting, we're given a picture of abundant life. There's abundant noise as God is with them. And I think if we think deeply about what this verse is communicating, I really think this should take our minds all the way back to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. For it is here that the people of God drink of the Holy Spirit and are filled, and each of them begun loudly speaking in tongues. They are empowered by God himself. And then what do the Jews accuse them of? What do the Jews accuse these people of? They're drunk on new wine, right? That's what's happening here. And so I think this is a direct allusion to what takes place in Acts 2. So from this text, as God's Messiah appears, he empowers his people. They're filled with life and noise as if they're drunk on wine. And again, I think this is what God is doing for the church here today. He is empowering us for his mission and purpose. He is filling us with the Holy Spirit. And as we do, we will be fully consecrated to the Lord, as the rest of verse 15 tells us. Like the sacrificial utensils used on the altar for God, so God's people would be used in a similar fashion. They would be priests before God as they offer up themselves a living sacrifice for his mission and purpose here on earth. And so all of us today here this morning as priests before God, we offer up our sacrifices of praises and our worship to him of service. We offer up our lives to King Jesus who shed his blood to draw us in to know God and to know peace. And so we do this then with the final promise at the end of this chapter. We do all this. We offer ourselves up because in the end, he will save them on that day. He will save them as the flock of his people for they are like the jewels of his crown. That is, they are precious. They are valuable to him. And God proved his love for all of us here this morning. He loves us like that as he sacrificed his own son to save us. So as we come to the end of the chapter here, our call is again to forsake Tyre, to not find salvation in Tyre, but to find salvation in King Jesus, who brings us the truest joy and salvation there is. So may we do this. May we look to Jesus. May we long for Jesus and his appearance again, where he will come and deliver us once for all. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we praise you for Jesus. I pray that our hearts would take this message to heart and that our rejoicing wouldn't end just in rejoicing, but in spreading the glorious name of Jesus with others, even as the sick person in our text today mentioned in the New Testament. Help us, Lord, to be so overjoyed at the salvation that we have and the new covenant that we are a part of through faith. And may we spread your glories from shore to shore as the message of the gospel 
takes control of the hearts and minds of people everywhere. Use us toward this sin, we pray. Amen.